even though there are a few, there are still Black people out there in these powerful positions, and that if they can do it, you know, I can do it, a whole host of other minorities, everyone can do it. All right, well, this is awesome. I'm really excited uh, to be here today with Austin Smith. Austin is a graduating, just graduated senior of the class of 2020 from Bexley High School, and will be attending The Ohio State University this fall to study biology and Spanish with a focus on the pre-med track. Alongside those interests, Austin is also passionate about investing specifically in stocks and real estate. This summer, he plans to intern with a physician to learn more about the medical field. However, during these past weeks, he has been involved with numerous peaceful protests in downtown Columbus, most recently with the newly formed Bexley Anti-Racism Project that is completely run by Bexley High School graduates. And Austin, you know, as I was saying before we got started, I've had the uh, privilege to watch you grow up and uh, to um, see you along the way and, and really always feel like I knew you as, as somebody that was a, a special, really bright light in the world. You've kind of radiated that. We'll talk about that you know, as we get into your journey. But I've really, really been just so proud to see you stepping up right now in this time in the world and really sharing your voice and your power and your story and your passion and, and all that's necessary and needed. So I just want to say that right off the gate, right out of the, right out of the gate, you know, that I'm, I'm just really proud of you and it's awesome to see you shine. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And it means a lot. And um, it's definitely been great knowing you over these years since elementary school. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, let's, in, in keeping with kind of our, our theme of the podcast, we want to hear your full journey. We certainly want to talk about what's going on in the world today, but you know, you've had challenges along the way and, and, and I want to just kind of have you start by talking a little bit about kind of your early childhood and, and, you know, how you grew up and your family and share with us a little bit about um, what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I guess we can start at uh, Columbus Montessori <laughs> on James <laughs> Road here in Columbus. My my mom tells me stories about how I'd be a leader and try to teach the other kids how to count. We had these beads. So I really enjoyed it there. I guess the Montessori taught me to just work with others. And um, I've definitely carried that with me. I enjoy doing things with others more than doing it alone. But um, after that, going into elementary school, In second grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade, I had to undergo leg lengthening surgeries on my right leg because um, I was born with my right leg shorter than my left. And because of that, I was forced to be bound with a walker. So I had to go everywhere with a walker. But even despite this difficulty, I was able to make more of it. (laughs) I was known as the cheetah as... I would use the walker as an extension of myself and having four legs and I would use it to get around the playground. And I didn't, I didn't use it as an excuse. I still tried to join in all of the activities outside whenever we were playing. I remember going to my friend's birthday party, playing dodgeball, using my walker as a shield. So I definitely made the most of that. But um, yeah. Yeah, let me just, you know, jump in there because I don't want to skip over uh, all of that too quickly. I mean, I want to I want to talk to you about kind of you with the walker and and kind of that time in your life, um, but even as a as a as a little kid, 
you know, Montessori, you, you know, you're, you're already kind of being described as a leader. And, you know, these values around working with other people, is that just part of your DNA? Is that just who you are? I mean, honestly, you know, that's not that common for little kids to be leading like that. Mm -hmm. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I've always loved people, but with the leading part, I'm not sure really where that came from. I wouldn't necessarily say that my parents taught me that in, you know, every aspect of my life, try to lead other people or any of that. So... I don't know. I guess I just like saw people, tried to help them and did whatever I could to, yeah, collaborate with others. Well, was there a point that you you were able to really recognize that and realize you wanted to continue to do that when you were little? Or is that something that you're kind of understanding, you know, was always who you are in like hindsight? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely in hindsight, when I was yeah, when I was young, I wasn't thinking I had no thoughts about <laughs> leading others or any yeah. of that. And, Most yeah. people don't. I just wanted to make sure I understood how unique you were. But <laughs> but let's talk about the walker. I mean, I have memories of you running around the baseball diamond. I remember uh, a, a pretty spectacular catch you made in the outfield oh, to yeah. save a game. You know, I, I remember you, um, you know, down the hallways... And what was always remarkable to me is that you had such a smile. You had such a, a charisma, uh, that, that bright light I was describing, when, you know, I think it could have been really easy to, to not. Tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, that, that kind of attitude that you seem to be blessed with. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the walker definitely was a setback. I would often, you know, ask why... why why was I the one with the walker? Why did I have to go through this problem? In hindsight, I'm glad um, that I was put through that. But even still, I just tried to make the most of it. With my friends, when I wasn't allowed to go outside, I would just play on my DS in the nurse's office. <laughs> and um, just doing that, I just tried to think of the bright side of things, even not being able to be involved in all the activities that I wanted to. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly what made me like keep the optimistic persona, but I'm definitely glad that I did have it. Yeah, no question. I mean, I I think it, it really um, was a big part of probably you getting through that time and and being as you know kind of adjusted as you are. You 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 really did force yourself to to make sure that you were in all the things that you weren't missing. Um, you know, as much as, as you possibly could, you were there, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'm just, you know, I like to highlight that because I think it's really important to uh, see that, that despite our, our um, kind of, you know, I don't know, weaknesses or, or disabilities, even at that point, you know, you, you can still, you can still really be right in it as much as you, as you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and I heard you say the other day at the at the rally, um, you know that that this getting to where you are now physically, well, there's a lot into that surgeries every year. Talk a little bit about kind of what that was like for you to to get on the other side of it. Yeah, well, for one, it was painful. I mean, every night my dad would have to use a wrench, and there was these dice on the uh, fixator. The I forget what it's called. 
but you turn it and the, it elongates the bone by millimeters each night. And um, yeah, that definitely is not something that I looked forward to. But um, in getting on the other side of it, I just, shoot, I mean, it was, it was tough. It would be tough sometimes. I mean, I'm not going to say that even with that setback, I was still, you know, optimistic all the time, happy about it. It still, it still hurt. And knowing that I wasn't like the other kids, like um, people would often look at me and I remember being called out for limping one time in first grade. I know that hurt, but um, yeah, I mean, shoot, I don't even know what to say. It was, it was tough. It was, yeah, it was tough. I hear you. Yeah. And, you, and, and how long did it really take you to be able to get to the point where you are now? I mean, I see you, you know, running around and I hear you, you know, hooping at the JCC and, that, you know, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're in full force now. How long did it really take for you to get there? Mm-hmm. Well, my last procedure was in sixth grade. So every year after that, I really just strive to make up for all the time that I'd lost. And that involved, you know, playing uh, basketball at the JCC and the rec leagues and getting involved with baseball in middle school and just doing all that I could to try to get, like, make up for, yeah, what I hadn't been able to be involved in in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also remember you at the scorer's table or, you know, the manager. I mean, you were on the team no matter how you could contribute. You just wanted to be there. Yeah. Um, and is that what that was? Just a, a want to just be there as much as you could? Yeah. 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 And it's what not- was it like? What was it like, you know, kind of um, uh, being supported or how were you supported or how were you not supported uh, at Bexley? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that my parents were behind me all the way. My friends, even though sometimes or maybe a lot of them didn't understand, especially the ones that didn't go to elementary school with me, so they didn't understand what I'd gone through or why, you know, I limped or why I had the troubles that I did. Even then, even not being able to understand, they still didn't question it. Sometimes they would, I mean, most of the time, they would just overlook it, just acted as as if I was one of them, allowing me to, you know, engage in the same things as them and really just treating me as, you know, an equal. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and you and you mentioned that, you know, you you in looking back on all of this that I think you said you were glad that you had the experience you had. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. I mean, you know, obviously it was hard. Tell me a little bit about kind of how that served you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not everyone in this on this world that can say that and uh ele- by the time they left elementary school, they'd already undergone three surgeries and experience, you know, some traumatic event that a person might only experience once in their life, but I had to go through it three times. So having that, I guess, in my back pocket, I could say that, you know, from now on, um, I can't see anything being as bad as those times. Anything is, something physical might come along the way, but whenever I'd be in a ditch or in a hole just with schoolwork or with anything, I just think back to, well, at least it's not as bad as, you know, those days in elementary school. And I guess that was a way to just be optimistic and look into the future with, yeah, um, angst. Mm-hmm. Say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. And I think it takes, 
again, the right kind of attitude to really decide that that's how you're going to frame this up. Um, I mean, certainly you've gotten on the other side of it, but you know that that can be a really traumatic thing to experience as a child. And you know, you've really been able to push yourself to get to the point where you can now see it as having some benefit, um, but not an easy thing to do uh, mentally. Mm-hmm. One quote that I saw and I kept in my mind is, the optimist sees the donut, the pessimist sees the whole. Well, shoot, I saw the whole bakery. I was getting all of the donuts, <laughs> all of the <laughs> Yeah, you sure were. Well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about you founded a, a, a newly formed anti-racism project at Bexley. And I'm curious, what was it like to be a Black man in Bexley? And, and what kind of led you to this project? Um, you know, what was your experience like as a kid growing up in Bexley and going to the Bexley schools? Mm-hmm. Specifically in high school, or I guess we'll start in elementary and yeah, middle school. Mm-hmm. My mom would always assure me that because I wasn't white, I couldn't get away with doing the things that my white friends were able to. And I talked about that in my college essay as well. But just being involved in just stupid things, getting in trouble, going to the office, just knowing that if I'm there, that it's going to stick with me. I'm going to become known as you know the black kid that's always in the office when if my friend might have been doing the same exact things as me, you know, it won't be, it won't become as like people, it won't stick with them as much as it would with me. But in high school, um, being black in Bexley schools meant being the only person in the honors and the AP courses that was, that was black, that was a minority. And sometimes that was discouraging. But one thing that I guess was like lucky for me is my class specifically has some of the the most amount of minorities in AP and honors courses that I think Bexley has ever had. So I was grateful for that. But in addition to that, really just, I mean, because I wasn't playing sports, I wasn't in basketball or football. I was the manager of uh, the Bexley basketball team at one point, but all of my black friends were more like their way out, I guess, would be going through the sports past. But with me, it was extracurricular activities. It was, you know, in school. So that was also something that I sort of, you know, missed out on um, just being the only one, really, and um, just taking an alternate route. So I know that was definitely different as well. But I mean, in all, what I will say is that I specifically was supported. But what I did throughout high school is I assured that I um, made connections and relationships with teachers. So I remember like the first day of school before going to class, you know, meeting them, shaking their hand, introducing myself, and maybe even bringing some chocolate or a flower or two, (laughs) gaining their trust and making sure they knew that I was there to work, to get work done, that I wasn't just going to goof off, that, you know, I was here for a reason. So I did that. And I definitely think that helped me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and did you think that you needed to do that when you, um, you know, would make sure you shook a hand and 
brought a gift or introduced yourself to a teacher, did you feel like that was something that was more necessary because of the color of your skin? Or was that just how you felt like you wanted to be you know, in this experience? Looking back, I definitely think that it's something that I needed to do. But at the time, it was really just because I liked people and I just wanted to develop a relationship because I knew that it would be best if I needed help with work, you know, they would be there for me. Or if I needed like, some extra credit, they'd be more receptive to maybe doing that for me. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also curious about your decision to kind of pursue the extracurricular and academic route as opposed to many of your African-American peers that really pursued the sports route. It, it, tell me a little bit, you know, in your case, maybe it was because of your disability that you, you know, ended up um, not leaning as much into sports. But, but um, tell me a little bit about kind of what you feel like the dialogue is around sports versus academics in the African-American community that has that be a common story. That they're, they're, and I heard Kaya say this the other day in her class that she was the only one in the honors program. So, so why is that? Is that just uh, kind of how it's, it's you know, become in our society? Well, um, what I will say is going from middle school to high school, you're basically linked up with uh, one, um, one of two counselors, either, um, well, Mrs. Washburn or Mr. Leland. And um, because of, that's because of your last name. But after that, they basically decide what classes you're going to take based off of what you tell them. So. In elementary and middle school, um, the minorities who may not have been as inclined to, you know, pay attention or be interested in really just class itself, when they go to high school, they're already going without the understanding of the importance of taking honors and AP courses and of doing other things to beef up their resumes. So then by the time that they leave high school, then the only thing that they can rely on is their academic um, pursuits because they didn't get involved in, in many extracurricular activities or the honor courses. So um, that's definitely one. And definitely um, with the Bexie Minority Parents Association, they've done a great job in um, encouraging and supporting more minorities to just get involved in some of those activities. But um, Bexley definitely does need to do a better job of offering that support. And um, making minorities, especially from middle school to high school, know that they're encouraged, supported, and um, looked upon just as well as their white friends. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a time where we're all looking, I can tell you, for me personally, in how we can do a better job. Because, you know, in Bexley, as a community, I heard the mayor say this the other day at the rally, that, um, you know, we, we tend to think that maybe we hold up some um, liberal values or some sort of more accepting way of being or more open-minded, um, you know, as a community. And I can say even in my own life and in my own uh, business that you, you really believe you're doing um, the right things. But then you learn that you don't really know what you don't know. And there's so much more that really, really can be done, should be done, needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, that I think is 
in part, you know, what's happening right now for a lot of people. Um, can you kind of circle back and tell us a little about the anti-racism project and, and how that came to be? Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, June 2nd, I believe, I attended my first protest ever. And that was very uplifting and supporting. My friends were there marching with me. So I just felt so, I just felt like people were there for me. And I wanted to um, have more people experience that same feeling. So on June 4th, the Thursday, I organized a uh, march. I called March for uh, March, uh, Make a Difference, the Mad March. And um, to my surprise, even though it was pouring down rain, we were all drenched, 60 people showed up. And we all met at the front of the Bexley High School. And then we met at the State House and we just protested there. So then, um, because of that, and because the um, BARP, the Bexley Anti-Racism Project, had already like been an idea and uh, the students that had organized it were still bringing on other people to expand its message. So they brought me in because they heard one of my speeches. So then on Saturday, um, by that time, they brought in me and Kaya and a couple other people. And um, with that, yeah, it just blew up. Like we all met at Drexel Circle and then marched, actually marched from there to the state house. And there were hundreds of people. That was that was absolutely insane. <laughs> it, it was really something. And I know that Dylan and Grant were with you in the rain. And then, you know, they came home and said, we got to go. And so, you know, I, I mean, you know, I can tell you that uh, as we, you know, listened to you and Kaya and others speak and then, you know, started to walk down Broad Street, uh, it's so moving. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, I mean, I, I, I can get, uh, teary-eyed just thinking about it, you know, the, the power, the strength, the, the passion, the movement that, that was created was, was really memorable. I mean, I, I think it really seared um, the minds and hearts of a lot of young people, a lot of people, period. I don't know how many, it looked like there was 500 people, I don't know, maybe more. And stopping along the way and hearing you guys speak, um, Austin, it, it was really something. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad. And that's exactly what we were trying to do. So, And um, I, I didn't, I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the only march ever in, like held in Bexley. And yeah. so I know that it'll be memorable. People won't forget that. No, they won't. L- let's, let's back up a little bit. And, and I want to kind of um, talk to you about um, the, the Floyd incident and and murder and 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 others like it that you know I want to hear what that's been like for you obviously you've you've rallied you've you've started to step up and lead and actually be really actionable about it but but I want to hear kind of in, internally you know what is it like for you to see that video to hear these stories to be a black man heading out into college and into the world. Yeah. Well, for one, it's scary. I mean, um, every time I leave the house, I know my mom is fearful for me with, you know, text messages and calls, making sure I'm all right. But in addition to that, um, as I've said before, every time I see a police officer, like I get a little scared, a little like looking over my shoulder to make sure they're not following me, making sure I'm obeying all of the traffic rules and signaling correctly, stopping, full stop at the stop sign, doing all that stuff. But 
in addition to that, gripping my steering wheel, steering wheel tighter just because, you know, I don't know if I will be the next one on the news. I'll be the next one beginning all of these marches. But I mean, it's also just like terrible. It just makes me feel some type of way to know that people have to continue to die in order for this message to be spread. Like with Trayvon Martin beginning the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, after that, you have a whole list of people that have just been unfairly murdered, killed by police officers who are supposed to be the ones sworn to protect each and every citizen of the country. What I will say is in Bexley, I refer to it as a bubble because I feel as though the people within it are at least better than the ones outside the bubble just because they may recognize me or they may have heard of me. So I know that I, at least I feel safer. But I mean, every time I leave Bexley as well, I'm even more fearful. Yeah, I mean, going into college and everything, I know my parents have reassured me again. And I've heard, had talks with people in my church and they're telling me that, you know, as a Black individual, you just have to be careful. You, you, even in college, I mean, no matter who you know or how safe you feel, there's always a threat. And so you just have to be careful of what you're doing, who, who you're around, and just being aware of your surroundings as well. So I've had a lot of those conversations, which sucks that I have to have at all. But I am grateful for those people informing me on what I need to know since they've experienced it firsthand themselves. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really important for people to hear these stories over and over again because here I am, I'm seeing you around Bexley. It's always great to see you. you got a big smile on your face. I don't get to see the fear. I don't get to see the text messages from your mother and the worry that she lives with. And a lot of people don't get to see it. They don't know it, especially if you live in the bubble. Um, and the amount of conversations I've had with my friends, African-American friends that have shared that they're afraid to go running. They're afraid to leave the house. It's a fear that you live with, that, it, that you shouldn't have to. You know, I, 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 don't, I, I hope, and maybe this is you know, um, the wrong thing to, to be focused on. I hope that maybe, maybe this is going to start to change that understanding that people will understand people are in fear, Black people are in fear and, and that they shouldn't be and, and that maybe we can start to change that. Um, do you think that, that that's possible now? Well, I do know that, I mean, just with the protests around the country, but also extending worldwide, that at least it's making an impact in people's minds. But what I'm really trying to see is some legislation changes and other changes that like just breaking the and stopping the perpetuation of, you know, the racism and like the slavery and criminal justice systems with the privatization of prisons and in the health the healthcare system, all of the disparities, actually seeing real change because it's one thing to protest and for people to I guess, have a mind change for, you know, a couple weeks or so, a couple months. But I know that these protests are not going to last forever and that the social media posts are going to recede, but I'm just hoping that lasting change results from it. So, yeah, once again, I just hope that another person, another African-American person doesn't have to die for real change to come. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're dead on and I'm glad you brought all of that up because you're right. 
you know, this, this movement, this, this moment, these gestures, many of them symbolic, um, maybe a shift in, in, in consciousness or awareness, but, but, but it'll be short-lived if there aren't real actionable steps. Uh, and I know that's another part of kind of the dialogue I've been having is what, what do we need to be doing? How, what do we need to be doing differently as a company, as a investor, as a business owner, as a, as a friend? You know, let, let's take some action. And, and you mentioned the, 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 prisons, the prison system, the systematic uh, racism generationally. Dylan actually turned me on to 13th. Okay, um, and, um, and I know uh, Michelle Alexander, I've seen her speak multiple times. Austin, this, this is going back generations, I mean, hundreds of years. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about kind of your passion for that and the actionable steps that we need to be taking as a country. Yeah. Well, what I will start with is in fourth grade, I didn't like talking about slavery or racism or anything. I had Mrs. Nicewander over at Maryland Elementary School. And whenever the topics came up, I would always like try to just raise my hand. Like, can we talk about something else? Because it just made me feel uncomfortable because I was surrounded by a whole lot of vanilla. I was the only chocolate. But in addition to that, that year, she definitely like, reassured me that this is something that needed to be learned, to be talked about. And then from there, oh yeah. So then there was an essay contest um, two years ago, and I actually won. They flew me out to Washington, D.C. It was the Black Caucus Spouses Essay Contest. And from there, I went and um, I was able to meet a lot of African-American mayors and other officials, a prosecutor as well, and they were speaking on a panel. And that definitely uplifted me. It showed me that even though there are a few, there are still Black people out there in these powerful positions and that if they can do it, you know, I can do it. A whole host of other minorities, everyone can do it. So that was uplifting. But then from there, getting involved in, you know, these protests here, definitely giving me more courage and um, hope and faith and just the power of these protests as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what do we need to be doing to really be in action to make the change that's necessary? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, shoot, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. I mean, yeah. I, I wish I could answer it all today, but... Um, oh, and, 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 you know, I want to just, you know, jump in because, you know, I'm not asking you as an 18-year-old, um, you know, who in the last, uh, you know, couple of weeks has is, is started to just, you know, start protesting. You know, I mean, this isn't for you to fix. Yeah. Uh, it's for all of us to fix and it's not going to be fixed overnight. Yeah. I get it. But, you know, are there some actions, some, some steps, some baby steps, you know, whatever, however big, you know, that we could be taking now in your opinion? Yeah, I'll, I'll say two, two big things. So one is, and I've given a couple of speeches about this, is just being complicit. Um, I had an altercation on a cruise ship in which a group of African-American women uh, was dehumanized and told to go back to the zoo. But even though my black friends and I were there, we had one white friend. She was the only one that confronted the woman. So in that moment, we were complicit. We were we chose to hold our silence instead of confronting her. So using that anecdote, using that story, I've encouraged people that whenever they see racism, whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's unintentional or it's their family saying it, no matter where it is, just 
saying something about it and doing something about it because it's those microaggressions, it's those small things that add up and that continually perpetuate the racism that has ravaged our country for centuries, for 400 years since we've been brought over um, in the Atlantic slave trade from Africa. So being complicit is definitely a big, big thing that Americans, all of us, just need to stop doing because we're actively engaged in the wrongdoing. And then for number two, I'd say education, because um, racism is a learned behavior. It's not, you're not born racist. You're not born with hate. So in our school systems, and I know Kaya has also been pushing this and talking about this a lot, um, at our school, there's an African-American studies course, except it's an elective. It's not something that you're taught. And even though there are um, important African-American figures that are taught in the AP um, U.S. history course. First of all, not everyone takes the AP course. But second of all, it's not enough. If people know, if people are continuing, and I was talking about this with actually um, a, a mom of my friend, that if there's some type of ethics course that people, that students are um, forced to, that are compelled to take um, beginning in elementary school, going through middle school, going up until high school, similarly to a Spanish course, like an elementary school with Spanish, where um, not taught how to speak it, but we're singing songs, we're engaged in Spanish activities in the middle school, we're learning words. And then in high school, we have the choice to, you know, expand upon that. If we do the same thing with an ethics course, but that's teaching about African-American studies in the beginning, you know, singing songs like We Shall Overcome in elementary school, but then in middle school, you know, learning about some figures. And then finally in high school, solidifying that knowledge with more stuff and just showing the importance of, you know, African-Americans in, in American history, then I definitely think that it would encourage people that after they leave high school and go to college, that they have a better understanding of racism of African-Americans and of their impact with, within their country that they're living in. So those two things. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking back on your experience at Montessori, where you learned about working together with people, you know, as, as, a, as a young, young child. That if we do pull this education component into the curriculum, into the environment from an early age, and we stay with it all the way through, it's going to shape how people act and and how they think. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes a lot of sense. What what is happening? I mean, to to make that change, um, is this where... um, Barb comes in. Is, is this you know? How are you going about? Are you going about doing something? Um, how can I help do something? You know, with within you know the Bexley environment at least. Yeah. Well, yesterday Kaya and I spoke with the mayor and two other city council members. Um, the only thing with that is they aren't able to touch education. I mean, the mayor could just take over the um, education at the high school as has been done in Cleveland where the mayor just took over because the superintendent wasn't doing a good job. Really, I mean, with the school board, the school board just needs to institute new policies, new moves, new executive orders, whatever needs to be done just to cement this this course that's taken starting then and then going. Right now, for you know individuals out there like you and I, Obviously, money helps donations to Afri- um, organizations such as uh, to the Black to Black Lives Matter organizations, but to um, you know the ones signing the petitions. I'm not even familiar with all of their names, but I know there are a whole house out there. You just 
type it in Google. But really just, I mean, also if you have a kid at home or to, to all the audience members that have children, if the school system's failing them, then take it upon yourself to every day just talk about some important African-American history, whether it's a figure, whether it's a event that occurred, whether it's just anything or just supporting a local Black business as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You can always just uh, start at home. I want to back up a couple of things that you mentioned. The complacency, the, 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 the example of uh, you on the cruise ship with your family. Tell me, can you, can you tell me why why, why in, your own, in your own example, were you complacent? I mean, what, is it fear? Um, you know, as I, as I think about 13th and, and some of the petty crime yeah. that African-Americans were being sent to jail for, or in some cases, you know, they talk about the boy, I forget his name, that, that went to jail for three years. He could have gotten out had he just admitted to a crime he didn't commit, you know? Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about like what's underneath the complacency for you. I, I think it might be different for white people, but in your case, you know, what's there? Is it fear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fear was the main, the main reason that I didn't confront her. In addition to that, a belief, a premature belief, really, that I shouldn't have had that if I did confront her, that nothing would have come of it. Because even in that moment, if I did confront her, and even if, I mean, obviously she's just not going to turn around and you know, apologize, and, and, or maybe she will apologize, but um, if she's racist, just that day stop being racist. Even if that doesn't happen, it's still, you look her in the eyes and you show that you're a human, she's forced to remember how she made others feel because of her own actions. And if I was to go up to her and um, nicely, you know, explain to her why that wasn't an okay thing to say, then she may think that not all Black people are bad, for example, just because if, if I would have been, you know, kind about it, not calling her out, not doing the same thing she did to them, to her, but just being respectful and an explanation. I mean, because some people don't even understand they're um, unintentionally racist or they're explicitly racist, but don't understand why it's bad just because that's how they've been raised. So yeah, in that instance, it was fear, but yeah, just the complicity. Yeah. Just mm. being complicit. Just, yeah. 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 And, and I'm, I'm, uh, last night, our family was having a conversation about Drew Brees, you know, Spike Lee apparently spoke to the team and praised Brees for standing up to the president there was uh, there is some debate as to you know why Drew Brees decided to take back his statement to change his his mind about uh, this issue. Um, was it because he was publicly feeling the pressure? Does he really mean it? You know, this is the, the conversation that's have that's being had. Uh, but but there's also a conversation that he learned that maybe he needed to say what he said so that he could really, really understand from the people around him how wrong it was. Um, now, I don't know what's true. I'm curious to hear what you think. But, but that, to me, is you know, an example of 
people standing up to him and, and maybe the possibility that he will change as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even realize that his mind had been changed. I remember seeing it on social media and I was like, whoa. But I was also glad that his own teammates were calling him out. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, in addition to that, it's a shame, you know, with Colin Kaepernick, you know, standing up for what he believed in and losing his job as a result and then not being able to be hired back. Like, that hurts me just knowing that he had this glowing NFL career and it just was taken from him. For, I mean, now it's, <laughs> now I heard, um, I can't remember if it was, it, I think it was the NFL saying that they shouldn't have punished players for kneeling then. I mean, just like, mm-hmm. how come now you're seeing that? How come you weren't able to see it, you know, when the last African-American person was murdered and, and people were standing up for it? Why did another person have to die in order for you to feel as though your past actions were, you know, ignorant? I mean, yeah. But. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you wonder if they're again doing it because they feel like it's the right thing that they've learned and they want to do the right thing now, or is it because they feel like they have to? Um, Roger Goodell said, you know, um, there is no NFL if it isn't for African-Americans. It's a great thing to acknowledge, but is he doing it for the right reasons? I I, I don't know. I mean, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but you're right. Like people shouldn't have to die anymore for for that change to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and so talking about change and and maybe it's because you know thirteenth is fresh in my mind, but you know the the police brutality piece. Um, there's a lot of conversation about you know you watch the history of of you know the fights on crime and and war on drugs and 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 all of the slave labor and 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 that whole piece. Um, including the the way that the police have been funded. There was a lot of dialogue as we walked in that protest about defund the police. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me kind of, and, and, I, and I know these are big, you know, heavy questions that aren't going to get solved and, and it's not your responsibility to solve them. But I am curious to hear kind of your beliefs around what we need to be doing differently with the police. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I'd just like to explain what defunding the police means. It does not mean completely dismembering the police force as they did in Minneapolis. That's just one example of just completely. But in, I mean, in essence, yeah, defund the police just means taking away some of the funding that would have gone to the police force and then reallocating, redistributing those resources to other things such as education, public health, um, any other places where in the community, those other things aren't supported as much financially. But then with this defunding the police, yeah, I feel like in many places, I remember seeing some statistics in Los Angeles that 100 million to 150 million was going to be distributed to the police for um, bonuses. But if all of that money is going to, you know, support these bonuses, well, how come it can't go towards, you know, education where fixing some of the aspects of the education that are obviously at fault. And then I remember yesterday I was talking about how Bexley, how many think that Bexley's over-policed, that there's more police than are necessary. 
we were just talking. It, it was a good conversation to have about, first of all, what did over-policing look like to me and Kaya? And Kaya brought up a good point just with um, every time she sees the police just becoming scared. Just like, I remember her talking to someone. They said that it was a white woman that when she sees the police, she runs to them for safety. But black people, you know, when we see the police, we run away, for them, run away from them for safety. So just even if it's not taking resources away from the police, well, then make the police known in the neighborhood. Show that they're humans, more publicity, showing, um, especially in small communities such as Bexley, like why, why don't we know who the police officers are? If, if we were able to know exactly if they knew who we were, if we knew who they were, then everyone would feel safe. So that, that going on as well. But yeah, with the defunding the police, definitely um, there, there are a lot of resources that go towards police forces in numerous, countless cities throughout the United States that um, could definitely be reallocated to other, other, other things. Yeah, Austin, you know, before we kind of, you know, move off this subject, because I, I want to talk a little bit about you and your future and kind of what's on your mind. Um, is there anything else that needs to be said, you know, you know, whether it be the prison system or, or political system or business, you know, tell, tell me anything else that you think we should be talking about that you think we should be looking at and, and starting to change? Yeah. Once again, there's only so much that each of us can do. But together, when all of our efforts are compounded and w- when we work together, when we collaborate, just like I was at Columbus Montessori, then change becomes possible. And so just like I said with, you know, teaching your own children about the importance of African-Americans and their how their history coincides with American history, with donating, with signing petitions as well, with getting involved, whether it's with um, these demonstrations, with these peaceful protests, or if it's, you know, posting something on social media. But I mean, ultimately, just knowing that racism, slavery, the prejudices, the injustices that African-Americans face that all of this is still real, that yes, 50 years have passed, you know, Martin Luther King, 1963 with his I Have a Dream speech. Yes, that was the past, but some of the things that did happen then are still happening now. And we have to know that it's time, I mean, the time is overdue. Like we wanted, we wanted justice yesterday, but it wasn't given to us. So we're going to continue protesting, marching, putting the stuff on social media, doing everything we can until African-Americans receive the justice that they deserve. But really just, I mean, in every day, just not forgetting that all, all of these are real issues and that even with those small acts of just not remaining complicit, you're being a part of the solution and combating the racism that's been in our country since its founding. Yeah. Um, it's well said, and um, I appreciate what you're doing. And I'm I'm curious, you know, how the last few weeks change your mind at all, if at all, as you start to head off to college and think about your future and and your role in this movement. I know that you've got an interest in 
the the pre med track and and studying uh, Spanish. You know, you've also got interest in in stocks and real estate. You know, talk a little bit about. Now, I'm not a believer. You're supposed to know what you're going to do um, at this age, and and I think it changes even if you do. Probably, you know, more than once, my career life, you know, continues to unfold and in surprising ways than than what I thought, you know, my life would look like in a in a great way. But but tell me, kind of, where's your head, and what maybe has changed for you over the last few weeks, if anything? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just as uh, along with the poetry competition that I'd been involved in, just speaking to large groups, I do find joy in it. I'm not going to lie, public speaking, mm-hmm. it may be calling my name. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, but I, I, I want to just hop in real quick because I was going to ask you, but go ahead and talk about poetry out loud. Because oh. <laughs> uh, there's a good story there too, from what I hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was crazy. Well, Poetry Out Loud is an organization dedicated to encourage students to, I mean, um, recite poetry in front of an audience. So it um, increases their confidence in themselves, but also it gives them a better appreciation of poetry. So Mr. Nolan, librarian at the Bexley High School, um, every year, freshman year, goes into the class and says, do you want to win $20,000? And that piques everyone's interest. But um, I didn't get involved until junior year, and I did end up doing it. I went against um, a kid by the name of Dylan Abel and lost. I was crushed. I was like, oh, man, I really wanted it. The Abel kids, they, they, <laughs> they, they win a lot at Bexley. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I came back next year. I, <laughs> I came back for my revenge, I like to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I went all the way. I went on the, there was a school competition, there was the regional competition, and there was a state competition. And I was supposed to compete in Washington, D.C., but unfortunately, because of the coronavirus, I wasn't able to. But yeah, that was definitely a great experience. What I liked the most is just making everyone proud. It was a whole lot of work going into that and just seeing everyone's faces when they said my name. It's just, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. But, can, you, can, you, can you share with us a little bit about what you spoke, what, what was your poetry? Yeah. The first poem is called Wide Receiver. It's a metaphorical poem. It talks about how a wide receiver is going out waiting for um, the quarterback who promised him in the huddle he would receive the pass. He goes out and the quarterback pump fakes, pump fakes again, but doesn't throw it to him and then just leaves him wide open. So it's about loyalty. It's about trust. It's about just being forgotten. And it speaks to that. The second one was called Worth, and um, it talks about, well, worth. And the first line is, today in America, people were bought and sold. And it goes into the story of a Negro wench that's um, put on auction. And it's questioned. She questions her own value. Like, can humans be bought and sold? Um, am Am I, like... Can money be exchanged for human life? So it talks about that, and there's some racial um, lines in that. So that's why that's what encouraged. That's why I chose that one because I wanted one that spoke about either slavery, racism, anything about that. So that that um, yeah, that's the reason behind that one. And then for the last one, 
Uh, you had to pick a poem before the 20th century. So this one's like, why dost thou thus? <laughs> <laughs> and it's called The Sun Rising. But it's, it's funny. It's um, a dude's in bed with his, with his, <laughs> with his lady. And um, the sun is coming through the blinds. And he's calling out the sun. Like, how dare you, busy old fool, unruly sun. And just calling out the sun. Like, you could be anywhere. You could be disturbing the kids. Outside, you could be disturbing the ants on the sidewalk, but instead you're coming through these blinds, just disturbing my time with with my lady in bed. So just leave and be gone. <laughs> so mm. that that one that one's funny as well. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, Austin, it's good to see your smile, and you know, I think um, whatever you do, I mean, you certainly have a a um, a good reason to go the medical route, you know, you've had your experience, you know what it's like to be in the system, you know what it's like, I'm sure to have good caring doctors and maybe some that weren't, you know, you you would be, you will be amazing at whatever you do. You know, there's a, um, there's a thing, you know, as, as, as you become a parent and, and get a little older, you know, you start to understand when people talk about you know, well, that kid, he was always special. You know, oh, that kid, you know, I knew he was going places. You know, you hear that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you get to see it. And, uh, and you're one of those kids. You're one of those, those people. You're, you've always had a real bright light around you. And there was something special about you. And um, you're continuing to uh, make memories for people. And and don't worry about making people proud because you're going to do that. That's just going to be what, what happens. What, what I love to see is that you're, you're stepping into who you really are. And if public speaking is calling you, then don't ignore it. You know, Follow the callings. Follow the authentic you. Not, not the you that you think you're supposed to be. Um, the one that really wants to explode into the world and 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 really live fully, you know, and you'll figure that out, I'm sure. But uh, you got a lot to offer, and it's awesome to watch you um, starting to move on into the world and into life. Thank you. In a difference. Yeah, and I will say it's been great knowing both of your sons, Dylan and Grant, <laughs> Dylan on the basketball court, going back and forth with him, but uh-huh. also hanging out. Yeah. So yeah. it's been great knowing you and your family. And it makes me very, very, very uplifted to know that um, I have you guys' support. You really do. And, and maybe we could kind of wrap up with that. Um, you know, is there a place that Others can be supportive um, that you want to point us to is the, you know, the Bexley Anti-Racism Project. Is there a way for um, people to fund, to make donations? What else, you know, would be helpful to you right now if there's anything you want to kind of direct the audience to? Yeah, well, for one, right now, I'm organizing a march for this Friday. It'll be at 1 p.m. at the State House. It begins at the State House. You go to City Hall. And then you go to um, the police department on 120 uh, Marconi Boulevard, but then also going to Long Street. There's a bridge there. And it um, has a lot of pictures of uh, important, prominent African-Americans. And so, you know, there we'll just pay our due respects to, you know, the 
um, the figures on that bridge and then go in back at the state house. But um, yeah, with BART, Bexley Anti-Racism Project, right now we're having someone create, like join the DARN board, the, the board for DARN, so then they can accept donations. Right now, they're just um, encouraging people to donate to the, I'm trying to remember, but basically any Black Lives Matter organizations, if you mm-hmm. do have, yeah, any donations. Yeah, yeah. I just say, you know, go out there, look up some petitions you can sign. I know there's one Hands Up Act that um, prevents police officers from being able to shoot um, unarmed citizens. So I know that would definitely be a good law to pass. But um, it, it is it is good to see some some change being brought about, elicited because of all of these protests. No, no question. All right. Any uh, social media handles or anything you want to put out there, people to follow you and and your your path as you go forward? Because I know you know it won't just stop this Friday. There's going to be a lot more for people to see and watch. So that's funny. Go well, ahead, get it out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me on um, <laughs> on Facebook at Austin Smith A U S T I N S M I T H. But on Instagram, you have the A boy, the underscore A underscore boy. And then on Snapchat, Austin the Beast. A U S T I N, but then D A E for duh and then Beast. But um, shoot. Yeah, I'm not yeah. worried about it because people will see more of me. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure I get my, my screen time and my mm-hmm. and the newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not worried about it either. Austin, um, awesome to to catch up with you and to connect with you and keep going. And and we do have you and we, we are here for you. And please, please let us know how we can continue to support you, you know, now and, and into the future and, and others that are in the same uh, mission here. So um, thanks again for taking the time to do this. It was a pleasure. Of course, the pleasure is all mine. I thank you and I thank Mr. Gary. Is that his name? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Both and for having me. Yeah. 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 my stories. And yeah, once again, thank you for your support. Uh, It's our pleasure. All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.